you aspire to be a superintendent, you think you know what the job might be like, but you may not really know. Bring together like-minded people. As well as organizations that are supporting school systems. And they bring the problem of practice with a group of people to talk through it, and then with vendors who provide solutions. And when you think about the notion of getting better, a lot of times people think that you're sick, but you don't have to be sick to get better. Having either that trusted network of colleagues when you're in practice or prior to practice becomes really important. That's what IEI does. Brought to you by the Institute for Education Innovation where like-minded, hard-working professionals come to listen, learn, and connect. This week on Education Thought Leaders. So a, a couple practical things. Um, it's very common in the startup world to negotiate equity and salary as part of people's compensation. Guess which kinds of people are able to sacrifice salary to have a huge amount of equity in a company? Probably people who don't have a lot of debt, who didn't grow up cash poor, who have a big social safety net, they can afford to say, oh, Colin, like, I'll totally come work for you for $5 and, uh, a, you know, a big percent of the company. Well, somebody who is sending money monthly back to their family in another country and paying off $100,000 in student loans is like, uh, forget the fake monopoly money, give me the cash. Well, now that person who already had a wealthy, privileged background has the opportunity to build more generational wealth. And the person who is coming from a very different type of background has no stake to build their own wealth. So we said, we're not, we're not playing this game. We created an equitable matrix for how we assign equity in the company. And we have transparent salary ranges now that we put out. So when you come apply for a job, this is the title. Here's your salary range. Here's the equity you get. We don't negotiate it. I don't care who you are, where you came from, what your experience is. This is the structure at the company. Everybody in the whole company has access to it on a spreadsheet because we believe that that shouldn't be something that you have to sacrifice because of your personal background. Now, that's something that's just ingrained in the culture of building companies, right? Even at every level, that's part of a negotiation and it's deeply, deeply unfair in many, many situations. So that's a, that's a big thing, but there's also small things like how your PTO policy is communicated. Who in your company feels like they have the autonomy to take advantage of PTO, right? So many of these companies have these like unlimited policies now. What does that mean? Where's the line? Because if my whole life, the non-rules, the unspoken rules applied to me, I'm probably never taking a vacation, right? But if my whole life I get away with everything and can explain my way out of any situation, I'm taking four weeks of vacation in Jamaica next week, next month. So we have really defined guidelines. We make sure that managers have those communication components. We make sure that people are taking advantages of these benefits in an equitable way. I could say when I first started Think Law, talk about that oppressive startup culture. At any given time, most of you all that are founders can probably say you could sue yourself for a hostile work environment. Mm -hmm. Right. Because how you're treating yourself is terrible. You're the worst boss in history to yourself. And the thing is, she gave me this suggestion 
We just shut down a company. I think it was two, three weeks a year. And since then, we got to four weeks a year. Where we, just, we just completely shut down. It's like, it kind of forces the issue. Like, everyone has to be off during this time. Creates a culture. Of, yeah. That, I, I that shut down. We have winter medley, we call it. Yeah. 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 Eric, Lynn, any other practical things that you would bring in here? Well, I don't know. And, and, and Mitaki as well. Just uh, whenever you want to come in, just holler and just start talking. No matter who else is talking, just talk. <laughs> Interrupt whomever at will. Go ahead, Eric. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if I put this in the bucket of practical, but. I, I also think that, um, so last, I mentioned that I was the, the former founder and CEO at LearnZillion. The company was acquired. And in the fall, basically, we had a Zoom meeting with about 20 folks on the meeting. Um, and it was all white people and mostly white guys. And I was like, there is no way that this company is going to be the winner. Uh, it's not only not right, we will not win because at the end of the day, you only build great products by having empathy, by really understanding your constituents. And if I surround myself with a lot of other people who look just like me and are like cookie cutter Silicon Valley, there is no way, uh, given the demographics of public schools, that we are going to come up with the, with the right product. We just aren't. And so I can either be humble about that and say, okay, what does it mean to go start something where we intentionally by design from the very beginning recruit folks who are going to look like the families that we serve? Or how do I do what would sort of be the easier thing and, and would almost happen without thinking about it, which is having a lot of, you know, white guys apply and have them join a new startup. And so I guess part of the practical is also strategic because it just isn't the case in the long run that what's happened in the past is going to result, like we're, we're just not gonna build the right solutions uh, without diverse teams. And, and diversity will never happen by default or by accident. No. It has to be intentional. It has to be intentional, I'll agree with that. So Nataki's point is interesting about that internal part of it. And I think even with like Eric just sharing that thing, can we be real? Like it can feel embarrassing to admit when you got something that's not really right from that standpoint. It could be humiliating. Like I remember I, I just put out a position for a director of professional development for, for my team. And I remember um, we had this really outstanding candidate who submitted this video but like she didn't actually show her face in the video. It was just slides. And I'm like, this is really weird. Why wouldn't she do this? And then when I'm actually like meeting with her, she's this dynamic, like black woman who has all this charisma. And I'm just like, I have to ask, like, why didn't you share your video? And it turns out that she really didn't feel like safe showing her video. She really felt like in a lot of ways, particularly through even getting mentored by a, an elder black woman leader in her school system that probably not going to help you to show your video. And I started thinking to myself, like, this is like my position. It's my, I own this company and she doesn't feel safe. 
And I started looking at the actual position description and over and over again, I kept on talking about what the right person will do. Like you will have and the right candidate and the right. And I'm just like, I've made it so that I've kind of eliminated who that person actually is. And I kind of enforce this thing. I want you to comply with what I'm looking for. And I even look at my applicant pool, the omission of that one line that could say, look, you might look at this and say you're not qualified. I don't care. Apply anyway. Please don't disqualify yourself for this position. And I'm speaking explicitly to candidates of color. I'm speaking explicitly to candidates from other represented populations because there's a lot of people who always say, uh, I only meet 99.9% of the qualifications, so I can't apply. And there's another bucket of people that meet 20% and said, hmm, I'll give it a shot and see what happens. I want to make sure I don't lose that, right? So these are practical things that I can do, but it requires facing that embarrassment, understanding when I'm not quite there and I need to do better. So thank you so much for bringing up that infrastructure point, Jess. And I think it, in addition to the pieces that can feel embarrassing, I mean, at this point, I think it's a six-page document of like, some DEI practices that we've implemented or thought about at some point. And like all of them are there because I like screwed them up initially and like learned and did better. And now I want to pass those things on to other founders. Um, Something I don't think we talk about enough because it's very uncomfortable, but it's very real. Sometimes equity has an actual cost like a physical financial cost to the business as well. And when you're a startup and you are cash poor and you are like, I hope we can run payroll, you know, and you discover that 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 woman is doing the same job and making less money. And we don't know how that happened, but you know, at some point she leveled up, she's now on the same level. We got to, we got to fix, we got to, we got to give her a race, right? We got to get her to where she needs to be. Well, you have two options. You can sit and ignore it or you can shell out the cash to make it right. I have another very practical example. Um, we had some we had some folks who were in, in our office space and in our company um, who are non-binary. And in the building that our office was, there were two restrooms. We had to, and they were gendered we had to petition the landlord to build a non-gendered restroom. And he said, I'm only going to do it if you bear the cost of it. So now you've got a choice. You can build a bathroom and shell out 10 grand, or you can have an unsafe space for your non-binary employees and office mates. That's real. That is uncomfortable. That is hard. It is real. It is a real part of it. And it's the thing that I don't think we're having enough of a conversation about. Because the fact is that a lot of these inequities, both in plain sight and under the surface, have a cost to fixing them, right? If we discover, if you discover that 30% of your women and people of color are underpaid, What are you going to do to fix it? Are you just going to let it go by or are you going to level set it? I mean, the transparent salaries, right? If we say the salary range for this is 60 to 80K and I have somebody who's currently making 40K and would have been pleased as punch to make 45, no, we don't get away with that. 
that person's probably being underpaid. If they're qualified for this job, we're paying them. Now, a, a capitalist, right? Your investor, your board member might say, you, you know, you just wasted 15K. You could have got them for 45. Oh, so we could have just let this person continue to be underpaid for the next 20 years of their career. Why does that room look the way it does? Those people weren't underpaid and undermined their entire career. I'm sure they're being overpaid. So there's a financial cost that we have to own as founders and leaders and say, no, we're going to commit to making this right. I'll also just say, like on the other side, I think there's a much bigger cost to not doing it. 100%. Right? Like, 100%. 100%. Leaving so much. And, and frankly, if you have a board member who is giving you a hard time about the 10 grand, to change, like part of your job is to get board members who get what you're trying to do in the long run and Absolutely. have them from the beginning understand that like any time something is wrong, it is an opportunity to stand up, do the right thing, because that's what builds credibility and, and culture. And like, like this idea of having a very, very transparent salaries. Uh, I'm sure there are folks who were surprised by that and folks who are used to being able to negotiate, but you're also sending a signal that now everyone who joins knows this is a company that always plays from the top of the deck mm -hmm. and that ensures that they're going to be equitable in how they pay folks by doing that. So you, you gain a lot too. Like you set yourself up for long-term success by actually like building that culture. But obviously the world doesn't operate that, right? Because right. look at what, look at what our pay gaps look like. Look at what our boardrooms look like. Look at what our fortune 500 CEOs look like, right? right? People aren't playing that game. But that gives us an opportunity. Yes, we like got to rewrite the rules. Yeah. And, and I think, so like, what I want to be hearing is this idea that calling yourself doing the equity work and everything always feels real comfortable, I don't think you could possibly be doing equity work. There's got to be moments like, damn it, what am I supposed to do now? Like, if, 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 if you're not getting to those, like, crossroads, you're just probably not there. Right. I'm so glad you said that because I once had an, so I always tell investors, like, this is what you're signing up for. If you work with us, like we make this a priority and you need to be on board or don't work with us. And I remember I sat in a meeting and, and this investor looked at me and said, just like, is this, is this just like a feel good thing for you? And I thought that's a hilarious question because it never feels good. It usually feels awful. <laughs> I usually feel terrible. Because you're unearthing all this stuff. Yeah. Agreed. And I think as we're obviously trying to increase our partnerships and work with more school systems, I'm curious about the equity approach in the partnerships themselves. Because there is a real inevitable way to do business, right? The by enemies necessary approach is like, I'm going to get what I'm going to get. I'm going to be belligerent. There's this aspect of like, you know, how I thought business was supposed to be that I sometimes even feel like, am I even qualified to be in business right now? Cause I feel like I'm doing things the way that no real business person would do. All right. So I'll start with you, Lynn. Are there things about your approach, the work that y'all do where like the aspects of equity are baked into how you approach and sustain partnerships with schools? Well, I think it starts with listening to them. I mean, you can't look at a school on paper and know what issues they're facing or know what struggles they need help with. Um, so you have to come and, and 
first from a point of listening and knowing what they really need um, and, and being able to adapt to that and to give them staff or give them resources that match those needs um, and really listening so, so, so if I'm hearing you right, because even if we say like we, we've got an app, or we've got a thing where technically like it is this one thing, we're always thinking about how do we make sure it actually really fits? How do we make sure we can actually like, even though it might not be entirely custom design, maybe there's something in the way I approach the onboarding for it. Maybe there's something in the way, but like I've got to listen. I've got to have a level of humility and respect as I'm doing it so that I'm not just chasing the fast buck, I'm really making sure that I am like, a tr- I'm, 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 so I'm working on a true problem for this partner and I'm not just a solution in search of a problem, right? So here, here's what makes that challenging though. In education, your buyer is not your user. And I think that creates dissonance where even if you are doing a good job listening, uh, there's a question about how honest are you going to be as a partner with a district leader who may be trying to get a job they need to get done, but that job actually isn't fully aligned with what's best for the students in the classroom? And if you continue to just sort of build for the buyer and not constantly be very deliberate about how is this product showing up for students? How is it? Are we relentless about trying to ensure that this is doing right by students, those two things can get in conflict. And I mean, it it, it doesn't seem like they should because district leaders are completely committed to uh, what's best for kids. But the reality is when you're starting something, you can only work on like one or two things. What's going to get the priority? And often what happens is the buyer's voice gets the priority and it's not the student's voice or the teacher's voice, and they get misaligned, and suddenly you end up realizing, like, oh, I'm doing a good job of creating this dashboard that a district leader wants, but I see time and time again when we implement that because we spent so much time on that dashboard, we're not actually helping to unlock the power of this particular map program. Um, to this point, and, and I'll call Doug to one second, I remember, so with Think Law, you know, we do this stuff with critical thinking, there was a moment where it started getting hoarded as a resource in gifted education. Right? Only, oh, that sounds great for my gifted program. And there's an opportunity of like, you know what sounds great? Paying rent. So yes, right, let's go do this. But at the same time, I'm at a point now, I'm like, hey, you know what? You're not going to do that. And in fact, we are not going to do any partnership that's going to only serve gifted kids in any district unless we have a meeting with your chief academic officer, your curriculum people, your executive director for secondary elementary. We got to at least have a, a, a meaningful shot at expanding it beyond. We have to expand it beyond, at least have a shot at doing it or else we're not going to do the partnership at all. So it's actually saying no to money when the money isn't actually aligned with the work that we're saying needs to happen. All right. Doug? Yeah, but... This is awesome. I have a question for the panel. I'd love to hear your thoughts. What it seems to me there's some education that could happen because we're just the, the vendors, here, sorry, partners here, right? So our members are all in there working on their their dream solutions for the future. What could we do here to help educate district leaders so that they look for that <clears throat> for that dynamic where the solution is really designed for for students and kids and the companies working on equity because. You know, frankly, it's very easy for the more capitalist, you know, 
providers to just, you know, bowl over the little startup where the founder right? So how could we potentially support this effort and educate out to districts about what to look for? I could say this for one, RFPs, language and RFPs, like requirements for vendor requirements. If you, some of y'all got districts where I need to affirm that I'm not boycotting Israel, great, right? Why not also throw in something that says that, like, I actually have real practices that we want to be held accountable for when it comes to making equity real within our internal company operations? Other thoughts? I think there's actually some overlap here with evaluating things from through an anti-racism lens. Um, We've actually been borrowing some resources around uh, organizational anti-racism evaluation from the nonprofit sector. We've kind of modified them. Um, And it's something that was a real epiphany for me this year was, (laughs) pardon the pun, these things are not black and white. Right. There's a spectrum. There are domains. This nothing. You're not doing anything like right or wrong. Yes or no. All the way or not. There is there's probably things you're doing really well. There's probably things you're not doing really well. And so when we did this, um, you know, some of these indicators are around things like who's at the table making decisions. Right. So in the nonprofit world, if you're just doing things based on what the foundation's goals are. Right. If you're just if you're applying for grants and doing work based on some family office's idea about how to eliminate poverty or serve kids, but you never actually ask the community you're serving what they need, then you're still upholding white supremacy in that behavior. Right. Because you're pandering to the needs and goals of these primarily white funders rather than the people you're serving. We could apply that lens to all of this work. We can apply that lens as companies, right? Are our users at the table when we're designing and building products? You could apply it to the purchase, the purchasing process. Are students and teachers part of this process in terms of, you know, who is this actually serving and do they have a voice in these processes? And so I think, it, you know, it's deeper than... Um, it, it's it's deeper than just this transactional nature. It's really evaluating the, these empowerment pieces. And frankly, a lot of it does trace back to white supremacy too, because who are most of the superintendents and board members in this country? They're white men, by and large. I think this also relates, Colin, with your story about saying, Are we just going to do this for gifted folks? And raising that question on the one hand, like, and and Doug, this sort of goes to your question too. Yes, that can be uncomfortable. And if you feel like, ah, the easy route is just to like double down on what I can tell this particular buyer wants. Okay. Again, in the short term, maybe that's, there's payoff to that. But like one of the things I'm really appreciating about the last few days here is the, the theme around authentic relationships and you build authentic relationships during uncomfortable, vulnerable moments. And so Colin, my guess is that it's more likely not every time, but like raising that point and saying, let's, whoa, whoa, let's talk about this. Let's actually talk about what we're trying to do in the long term." opens up an opportunity to like get real with, with your customer and develop a relationship where they're like, I know that, 
this vendor is going to be honest with me and is going to push and we're going to actually have a relationship and they're not just in this for like taking my money as soon as they can. And so, you know, again, I don't know your, that situation and maybe it really did mean walking away from, from a deal, but in my experience, like our, our, the customers that ended up being great customers, references that led to like the business growing were the ones where I could pick up the phone with that, that district leader and have like an honest conversation about what was working and what wasn't and know that nothing was going to be, you know, have trust that they were going to be real with me and I was going to be real with them. And so I think this is an example where it's not so much teaching district. It's just having a conversation and like, let's, let's work this out. You've got something you're trying to get done, but also what about this? You care about that. Here's why we need to focus on that. And like, let's, let's get there together. So I think this is an important message to communicate to founders and other like high level leaders and organizations who are uh, people of color or otherwise just kind of not in line with the overall demographics we see, women in leadership, anyone who might potentially struggle with any aspect of, of, of imposter syndrome, which is that like being that authentic can be such a liability mm-hmm. in so many aspects of life. And in fact, a lot of the survival tactics we got over time were to not do all that. To play the game of thinking about what exactly does this person want? Let me try to find a way to kind of work backwards, read their mind, and give them exactly what they're looking for because that's the way I've been able to make it through elementary school. That's how I made it through this job over here and this principal over here. So at the end of the day, we've got to recognize you created something, you're leading in something, and this is a space where almost like daily, daily, I'm reminding myself that I am who I am for a reason. My story has occurred for a reason and I need to live off of that story. I need to actually be the person who stars in that story. Even when I feel like I need to pretend to be somebody else. It's hard to do that in practice. It's hard to tell somebody with all these credentials and superintendent of the year to be like, I don't think that's the way we should do this. Who the hell am I to say that? I actually know who I am. I'm the person who have been on the other side of this. I'm the person who in many ways reflects the stories of a lot of kids that you're having trouble serving right now. So you really might benefit from listening to me and us having this conversation. And as uncomfortable as that might seem, it actually helps. It it actually does work. I just want to name the discomfort that's inherent in that if you're coming at this from a different place. Where you not do you never could feel truly like a peer. I mean, I've had so many people tell me like you got to tone down like the equity conversation. Like it's not professional. It's too political. You're going to alienate customers, and that's hard to hear, right? Because on the one hand, I have a responsibility to run payroll, <laughs> to pay my own mortgage, right? There's there's very real dynamics. But also, I need to be able to sleep at night and I need to be able to feel like I'm doing things in line with my values. And again, to, you know, to go back to the point about it being intentional, if you're not leading with your values, you're perpetuating the status quo by default. And that's not what I'm here to do. So, yeah, there's going to be business I lose There's going to be business I never get, 
because people don't align with those values, but we just got to keep pushing the needle and keep moving things forward because otherwise, what are we doing? Right. Are, are any of us here? I mean, we heard, you know, Tim on the panel last week, the worst case scenario in five years is we're in the same place. Are any of us doing this work every day? And I know we're all losing sleep. We're all, we all have stress disorders or prematurely graying. Like we're not doing this to have more of the same. So if we're not out there leading with our values, then what is the point? What is the point? I think too, that, um, you have to be willing to look where things aren't working. And as a company, you often want to focus on what's going well and what's what's working really well um, when you want your company to succeed. But the, the cases where things aren't going well are probably the room for growth that's most needed. So, you know, what ser- what students is this not serving well and why? And, and learn from those scenarios to make it work better. Um, it's important to look at that rather than just focus on what's going well. Yes, question. Um, not really a question, just um, a suggestion based on the question Doug asked before. How do you help educators, superintendents understand the need to, to keep this as a focus? And one of the things that struck me with that question is that when we use the um, acronym CRT, what do we all think of? Critical race theory. But when I asked my daughter, who teaches in the Alexandria City Public Schools, what her reading list was for the summer, she said, it's CRT. I said, really? She said, yeah, culturally responsive (laughs) teaching. So immediately it came to mind when the question was asked, maybe that's a simple thing that our sponsors could do. When you have conversations with educators, talk about how what your solution to problems can do to support culturally responsive teaching, because that's really what so much of this is about. You're not going to obtain equity in any sense unless people understand other cultures and understand people's backgrounds and then can teach appropriately to that. Just a thought. No, for sure. For sure. And I think... (laughs) As we're wrapping up and we have all these really good ideas to kind of work with, um, that focus on that practical has got to be real. This idea that it has to be intentional. It has to be something that like we're, 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 we're feeling ourselves grappling. That same kind of productive struggle we want to see for kids when they're like trying to puzzle through things in the classrooms. This is what we got to do as leaders of our organizations when it comes to matters concerning equity. So um, with that, um, we'd love to kind of see if anyone has any final words or any final questions before we wrap up. Um, Nataki, you want to put an exclamation point on something? Jess, you want to throw a chair? I mean, we could just kind of see what the options are here, but uh, we'd love to just kind of uh, 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 re- Wrap it up with some other words from, from, from the panelists here. Nataki? Um, yeah, I, ask, I think there, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, as uh, partners, our responsibility in these scenarios and how do you sort of start having those conversations. And I'm just curious, in all of your experience, you know, what are some strategies for dealing with people, you know, with empathy and sympathy where that fear of change and that sticking to the status quo is coming from a place of fear, where like they want to do the right thing and they want to be guided forward. 
in this work, but they are just afraid of what the results are going to be because it's, you can pull those people forward with you sometimes. It's like a delicate, really delicate work. So one thing that I would say is that sometimes we look at issues and we call it a matter of will and we don't pay as much attention to the fact that there's a lot of skill involved in doing it. So one of the things that we do is like, yo, how do you do it? How do we frame the conversation? Literally having frameworks for the conversation makes it a lot easier because you know how to address it. You know how to like, you know, whenever I'm trying to get a school system, um, I had one in North Texas the other day. I knew it was going to be a very skeptical audience. So how did I approach the whole thing? Systemic racism is a bunch of BS, right? I'm going to be very skeptical about this until that they can come to their own understanding because I'm never going to be able to tell them anything. They're going to have to be learning in a framework where they themselves are coming to their own understandings about the thing. Otherwise, it's always going to be met with a level of defensiveness until they're like, oh, shoot, you just put up all this language from the property records that showed me that like redlining was really real and in the language for the property deeds in your community, your county commission just dealt with this in April, 20, uh, April 2021, removing this language. So this year, this language is still there. So this isn't something from yesteryear. So when we see these things and they come to their own aha moments, that fear, bravery doesn't really make a difference because they've come to their own understanding. We just got to make sure we give you the skill set to design this kind of learning experience for people where they're able to come to their own understanding about stuff. I think also just some principles of movement building and organizing are really critical here. I mean, you think back to the fact that like when the PC came out, people were like, why would I want that? Right? Like the internet was a hard sell to people. There's this great video on YouTube called how to start a movement in three minutes. And it's like this whole crowd in a park and this one guy gets out. (laughs) Right. And he looks like a lunatic, but then like another person gets up and is like, okay. And you know, there's those people who are like, I'm not getting up to dance in the park, but by like minute two 30, now you look like the loser if you're sitting down on the sidelines. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause now that it has tipped right? Adoption curves are real. Momentum is real. And so there is something to be said for like an army of the willing. You have to to start with those people that see your vision, that are on board with where you're going. Because if you can show success with them, each new person or each new organization that you do that with and have the success stories, it's easier for each next person. Right. Some there's go there are just natural early adopters and there are natural skeptics and laggards. You cannot start a movement with skeptics and laggards. So it's not to say we're not worried about you ever, but we do have to accept the natural momentum of things. And you've got to start by working with people who are on the same page with you. And I, I mean, we have seen this in the past five years. I had people tell me you were absolutely nuts talking about this equity stuff. And they call me now saying, I thought you were nuts five years ago talking about this equity stuff. I need you. You, you got to come in. We got to do this now. So it, each new person makes it a little bit easier for the next one. And then all of a sudden it's inevitable, right? I mean, when Barack Obama entered office, 
We did not have marriage equality. And people thought it was crazy. Think about how much public opinion has shifted in 12 years. But it didn't happen overnight. And the laggards and skeptics weren't on board. And we've, you know, we've, I think there's some element of movement building and organizing here at play. Even he wasn't on board in a way, right? Wasn't so, on board. Yeah. So, with that said, I, I think that's a really hopeful note to end things. We do the work so that the work can get done. This is important work. All right. Thank you all so much. This has been Education Thought Leaders, brought to you by the Institute for Education Innovation. The superintendents, we don't have peers in our we, you can have people who support you, but no one's that's yours. Talking about shared solutions, talking about collaborating at a very, very high level. So coming here kind of gives you a little rejuvenation, that little pick-me-up. Superintendents and vendors from across the country, and that the whole exploration and development of new partnerships is critical. 